0: Thank you for coming. Let me just get this started. Okay. Thank you for coming. And uh, this is the second of uh, our shurim uh, regarding regarding the history and the thought of religious Zionism. And I wanted to start out this evening um, on a personal note. Um, First, uh, tonight's lecture is uh, dedicated. Um, It's dedicated, uh, I was talking to um, Paul Berger, president of the of the board in our school, and he has your for his father upcoming, Rav Zev Ben Pinchas Shavach, uh, so the Torah that we learned tonight, Shabi uh, Li Yule And I also want to dedicate tonight's learning and loving memory of my Safta, Esther Tova Bas Sara VeMeir. So this is a picture of my Safta, and I thought that it's apropos uh, to dedicate some learning uh, about Israel uh, to my Safta. And this is her uh, in her younger years. And uh, she, this is, uh, she was in the Israeli Air Force at the time. Wow, uh, that's and, so cool. Yeah, uh, she was in the Israeli Air Force at the time. She grew up in this picture over here, just very quickly. Uh, this, is the this is the Jewish quarter in Vienna. My Safta, remember, I'm not going to mute us just because we're a smaller crowd this evening. So feel free to hop in. But this is the Jewish quarter in Vienna. My Safta was able to visit it with my father and my uncle David, uh, Aleva Shalom. Uh, my uncle David passed away about two weeks ago. And um, they were able to visit here and my staff was able to say, you know, this is my victory, uh, this place. And um, she was a young child when she remembers looking out her window uh, one night when she was woken up and it was Kristallnacht and uh, the shul. Um, the uh, the shul that they went to was, uh, was in flames. Um, she was... Uh, she survived, um, there, were, there were very, uh, very close calls. Uh, she recalls, uh, she was buried, my father said at her funeral uh, that she was buried, this is the second time that my Safda was being buried. Uh, she was buried alive and her mother had to come and uh, to dig her out um, yeah. to sense that she was alive. And um, she survived, she made it to Israel. Uh, she joined, now uh, I'm just gonna mute us for the time being. She made it to Israel and um she had her brother was already there and my uncle fredy who should live and be well was a member of kibbutz masuot yitzchak uh, managed to not be there when masuot yitzchak and the other kibbutzim in the gush were overrun uh by uh by gangs and um she survived she went to the Mikveh yisrael agricultural school the Mikve Israel Agricultural School uh, was one of the very first um, Zionist agricultural institutions. It was a school that was meant to teach um, to teach young Zionists uh, how to work the land, uh, fulfilling a dream uh, that we're going to talk about tonight of the Chovev Zion. And um, she had a classmate in the Mikve Israel School by the name of Moshe Dayan, uh, was one of her classmates, and. Uh, The Mikveh Yisrael School was founded by the Alliance uh, Universital. I'm pronouncing that wrong, but it was the French Jewish uh, communal institution. They established it. She went here and when she was attending it, she managed to uh, even see uh, the Altalena on, uh, which is the picture of the Altalena in flames uh, that was uh, bombed, uh, that they thought would be, uh, that would start a civil war uh, between the Haganah and the Palmach and uh, did not, but she managed to see it from the Tayelet in Tel Aviv. And then she and my Saba, Zecherno uh, Levracha, made it uh, eventually to Denver, um, Denver, Colorado, where he was, uh, they were both educators. My Saba was a principal for many, many years. And um, my Safda passed away. Uh, her Shloshim is coming up this week. Um, my Safta passed away uh, in Denver just uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, so again, so we're gonna dedicate our learning tonight in loving memory of her. Uh, I always, I said at her funeral, my Safda story was the story uh, in many ways, her life story was the story of Judaism in the in the twentieth and twenty uh, and twenty first centuries. You know, the running the gamut from for, from the Holocaust, from the pits of despair, uh, to a proud, uh, beautiful young Jewish woman in the Israeli Air Force, uh, looking towards the future. And again, our learning is also dedicated to Revzev Ben Pinchas Shevach, father of uh, our very own Dr. Paul Berger. So let's uh, let's get back into it. We were learning. About the Chovev movement that I that I explained is, was the very first loose collection of activists and groups that believed that the time had come for for active mess for, for active settlement and 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 political activism to bring Jews to the land of Israel. That there were many causes of this, and uh, when we discuss Chovev it's more of a movement. Uh, And it's made up of disparate groups, and many of those groups were without political aims. Some were. Uh, Many of the groups, the the stated goal was just to bring Jews to the land of Israel to work the land of Israel. And they were committed in one way or another to this goal. And they tried to seek it out through powerful Jews of their time, uh, those that had the means, those that had the political influence to be able to help them achieve this goal, such luminaries like Moses Montefiore, we, turned, we talked about uh, last time, Isaac Cremieux, who was the French uh, foreign minister, who was a Jew and sympathetic, uh, Philo-Semites in England in the British Empire, and uh, also, of course, the uh, Sir Baron Edmund Rothschild, uh, who were people that they turned to and that they were going to agitate for a natural way of achieving this goal of settling Jews in the land of Israel. Now, there were many problems that were going on in Eastern Europe at the time, and we're focusing right now on what is essentially an Ashkenazi phenomenon, even though Rav Yehuda al who we mentioned last week uh, was a Sarajevo uh, Sephardic rabbi, Sarajevo-based Sephardic rabbi, um, but part of it was that there was also a wave of pogroms that was, uh, that was sweeping over Russia at the time, between the years of 1880 and 1920, about two million Jews emigrated from Russia. Many of them came to the United States, and some of them were looking to move to the Land of Israel to settle what was then Palestine. One of the most important thinkers for the movement of Chovei Zion, we're going to start out discussing tonight, is this man, Rav Tzvi Hirsch Kalischer. Rav Tzvi Kalischer is one of the most fascinating figures in the Chovei movement. Just a few more words about this. An idea of these loose groups. For example, one of the largest groups of the Chovavetzio movement was known as the Odessa Committee. Um, maybe, I'll show you, um, maybe I'll show you a picture of what the Odessa Committee looked like. Let me see if I could show you a picture. Um, here's a picture of the Odessa Committee. So the Odessa Committee uh, numbered about 4,000 members at its heights. So you could see that they look uh, quite traditional uh, in their dress and in their appearance. The Odessa Committee was one of the largest Chove um, movements. And uh, when they registered in 1890 in Russia uh, as a charity, so the way that they registered themselves was the Society for the Support of Jewish Farmers and Artisans in Syria and Eretz Yisrael. Uh, this Odessa Committee, just interestingly enough, one of its major funders was a man by the name of Kolonimus Wolf Vesotsky. Um We're probably familiar with uh, with his uh, tea, um, and uh, he, at the time, uh, Kolonim wolf was the largest uh, was the largest uh, was largest tea company in the Russian Empire. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So that that's the kind of individuals that we're talking about. By the time that the Zionist Congress happened in 1897, most of these groups of Chovev eventually became subsumed under the Zionist Congress and, and the movement found itself a political home. Ritzvierz Kalisher was one of the most important figures in this. He was one of the rabbis, one of the rabbinic luminaries behind this and lending rabbinic weight to the return to Zion movement. Ritzvierz Kalischer, uh, this is a picture of him, was a Talmud of the, one of the greatest, ta- greatest Talmudists in history. It was a Talmud of Rabbi Akiva Eger. Uh, he lived in Posen. And he wrote a book called Emunah Yashara. Here's the colophon for the book over here. Emunah Yashara was three sections. The first section of Emunah Yashara and the second section of dealt with Jewish theology and philosophy. And the third section he called Eretz Here's a modern example of the book. And the book made such a stir and caused such a tremendous uh, ripple effect that it was translated into many languages, for example, it was translated into German over here. It, ra- it raised tremendous opposition also, notably Rav Shamshon ben Rafael Hirsch uh, was very opposed to it. And what he argued for was that three things needed to happen and the time is now for these things to happen. We need to bring back Jews to the land of Israel. We need to settle the land of Israel and we need to work the land of Israel. That was what he was committed to. And he even had a Messianic element to it that said, as I mentioned last week, that we need to buy Har Habayit, purchase the Temple Mount, and be able to bring the carbon Pesach, to be able to bring the Paschal Sacrifice, which was the sacrifice, is the only sacrifice that according to his halachic reasoning could be brought without a rebuilt Beit HaMikdash. And that's an explicitly Zionist element. And his, uh, his book caused such an effect that it was read by Moses Mount of Fury, it was read by Sir Edmund Rothschild, and uh, eventually it led to the establishment of a kibbutz uh, that was named in his name called Kibbutz Tirat Zvi. And this is a, uh, the Bnei Akiva sniff of Tirat Zvi in September 1947. Uh, this is a, a plate of stamps that was produced by the Keren Kayemetli Israel of religious Zionist luminaries. Here's Rav Kalisher. here is Rav Cook. And here's Rashul Mahaliver, who we're going to talk about a little bit later this evening. This over here is the defense plans for Tirat And this is an aerial photo by the uh, Zionist photographer Zoltan Kluger. You're probably familiar with some of his work. I'm just going to show you for a second. Uh, this famous picture, this famous image is taken by Zoltan Kluger. And I think symbolizes a lot of what became later on the impetus for much of the second Aliyah of refugees, of the third Aliyah rather, of refugees from uh, from war-averaged uh, Eastern Europe, the survivors of the Nazi Holocaust. But uh, this is Rav Kalisher's dream. This is what Rav Kalisher had, had imagined would happen. And of course, Tirat Tzvi, uh is still around nowadays. You probably have had their Turkey one time or another. Uh, it's a religious Zionist kibbutz. And um, I actually uh, worked once with uh, in a camp in Israel uh, with Zichro Menachem, the Organization for Cancer Patients in Israel. And one of my co-counselors was from Tirat Tzvi And I couldn't imagine, couldn't believe, but this was, all, uh, this was all based on this Sefer, published in Lick, 1862, Let's see what Rav Kalisher has to say. Rav Kalisher says, and we're just going to read in the English, he issued a Kolkore, he issued a broadside, telling everybody that the time is now, the time has come, Yavo Mashiach Tzidkenu, the Messiah is going to come, and it's signed Zviher Kalisher. and he writes to teach, I decided in my heart to explain. Contra to the two groups we mentioned earlier, based on the prophets, Safri, Jerusalem Talmud, the Holy Zohar, Nachmanides, and many other great Rishonim, he marshals all of these classical sources in service of this idea. Listen closely to what his main core idea is, that the final redemption will sprout little by little, and how the logical and traditional obligation is upon us to exert ourselves with strength, courage, and fortitude, Everyone who thinks of themselves as part of the Jewish nation must endeavor as part of Hebrot Eretz Noshevet or the Committee for the Settlement of the Land of Israel. This is his dream, a kvutzah, a group of people who are deciding to take up the cudgels to this mission and settle the Land of Israel on their own, Hebrot Eretz Noshevet, and that it's going to come and we have to do it on our own. I pray that the one who shines upon all of the earth and those who dwell therein will enlighten the eyes of the righteous and wise leaders of our times to endow their great spirit with a generous, benevolent feeling because the appointed time is upon us. Let's pause for a second and unpack what he means over here by little by little. I'm going to show you another book, doing a lot of show and tell tonight. This is one of the very first Sfarim that I ever learned. It's called Ayelat Hashachar. It's written by a religious Zionist luminary by the name of Rav Yaakov Filber. Rav Yaakov Filber was the Talmud of Rav Cook's son, Rav Tzvi, Rav, uh, Rav Tzvi Yehuda Cohen Cook. And on the back of Ayelat Hashachar, in which he marshals all of these important arguments and uh, an ideology. It's a programmatic book about what Shivat Zion, what the return, the Religious justification for returning to the land of Israel looks like. He quotes on the back is a little Gemara from the Yerushalmi. It's very short. I'm going to read to you. And this is what little by little means. It's very, very beautiful. Rabbi Chia HaGadol and Rabbi Shimon ben Chalafta, Rabbi Chia the Great and Shimon ben Chalafta, hayu mehalchim Bikat Arbel. They were walking in the Arbel Valley. Many of you have probably hiked the Arbel. You've probably seen it on the banks of the Kinneret. The and they saw that's what Ayelat Hashachar looks like. They saw the sun rising, they saw the sun breaking over the horizon. Shepak'a ora. the sun was starting to shine its light forth. Amar Rabbi Chia Hagadol Shimon, said to Rabbi Shimon, "Kachigu latan this is what the redemption of the Jewish people looks like." Kimah, kimah. In the beginning, it is little by little. Exactly what Rav Kalisher is referencing over here. Kol holechet and the more that it grows, it becomes bigger and bigger. Rav Kalisher recognized that the land of Israel at the time was really a backwater. Was really a place that could not support. All of these people that he imagined would be coming from Eastern Europe and from Jewish diaspora around the world. But he saw, and the other religious Zionist visionaries of the Chovah Zion movement saw, that the redemption is going to come in little steps, little by little. And this kim'ah kim'ah was the basis of their worldly and natural sense that the redemption would come in natural ways. And he talks upon the philanthropists of Yeshurun, Darren Rothschild, Moses Montefiore, Judah Turo in America, all of these individuals who would give of their wealth to be able to have us purchase land, settle it, and work it agriculturally, and of course, defend it as well. This movement, Chove crystallizes, as we said, into the Zionist movement. The first Zionist Congress in 1897 uh, really declares that we have nothing to do with traditional Judaism, eschews all connections with traditional Judaism. And yet, by the fifth Zionist Congress, we already have students, students of of Rav Kalasher and his contemporary Rishmur Mohalavar, and we'll talk about one in a second, who found the Mizrahi movement. The Mizrahi movement seeks... Excuse me, to add a religious element to say that actually what we're talking about over here in the Zionist Congress, all this secular notion of returning Jews to the land of Israel, that's been talked about. We've been there and we've done that. And This is a letter from the secretary of Mizrahi in the Grodno district. Rashmol Yaakov Rabinowitz of Sopotskin. Rashmol Yaakov Rabinowitz of Sapotskin, I'm just going to show you one of the conferences was the Kadowitz Conference, and this is the Kadowitz Conference in 1884. And this is a precursor to the Mizrahi. And sitting amongst all of these distinguished men in Kadowitz, Poland, is one Rashmol Mahaliver. That's Rashmol Mahaliver, Sadiq. Roshmuel Mahalever was a student of the Volajan Yeshiva, and he was one of the major, along with Ritzvierz Kalischer, one of the major ideologues of the Chovah Eitzio movement, Rashmuel Kalisher had a student, one of his disciples was this man, Rav, Rav Yitzchak Yaakov Reynas, who was the first secretary and the first leader of the Mizrahi movement. Now Mizrahi is still functioning nowadays. We have the Mizrahi magazine uh, in our shoals. We send our kids, I send my daughter to uh, a, a youth camp, uh, a camp uh, that is uh, founded by the youth arm of Mizrahi, B'nai Akiva, and uh, Camp Mosheva. And it starts with Rav Yaakov Rainas, who is a Talmud of Rav Mahalavar. Take a look at him again. These are both, Rav Mahalavar was the Rav of Bialystok and he was a major rabbinic leader. And he was somebody that put all of his energies into the notion that we are going to return Jews to the land of Israel. Skip ahead for a second. And uh, this, this is one of the rabbis, Roshmol Yaakov Rabinovich of Sapotskin. And he is writing to the Mizrahi movement. He's writing to the Zionist Congress and he says, slow down for a second. He says, they're going to be printing the Sefer De Rishat Sion again. He says, I was elated. To hear, this is his letter to another Zionist leader. He says, I was elated to hear that he plans to reprint this special book again. It is an auspicious time for such a thing as it demonstrates to the nation. That the Zionist idea was not born circumcised. That's a rabbinic parlance. Nolad mahol means that it was born. That it was it was born yesterday, and everything was there and ready to go from 1897. You know, Herzl wrote his book, and uh, and and now this brand new idea is coming, and it's going to uh, it's going to electrify the Jewish world. He says it's not true. It didn't come on its own. We already had people like Rav Shmuel Ravihuda Rav Yehuda Al-Kalai, and Ritzvah Yerush Kalischer who were writing about this, who were activists, who were speaking with some of the great world leaders to try and get their support, and were already establishing Jewish settlement in the land of Israel and Jewish places of agriculture and defense. Herzl didn't come first. That even 50 years ago, when many of our nation imagined still that salvation would come from the enlightenment of civilization. And think about what that means, right? This is written, he, Rav Shmuel Rabinovich dies in, in 1921. He doesn't know what's going to really come from the enlightened civilization of of Europe. He doesn't know what really is going to come for them, but even then he's referring to a wave of pogroms from 1881 to 1884 that swept over Russia and some of them were even state-sponsored. He's referring to the May laws of 1882 by Tsar Alexander. And like I referenced before from 1880 to 1922 million Jews are essentially forced to emigrate from Russia due to the unfavorable and dangerous conditions for them. We thought that we would be able to find our salvation in the enlightened peoples of Europe and it, no such thing happened. There were already those wise men amongst them who understood what a grave mistake it was, how it would not help us one iota. One might say that Roshmur Mahalavar, Rav Reynas, Rav Kalisher, Rav al that they internalized that the future of the Jewish people was certainly not going to be. They didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but they certainly were able to internalize that the Jewish future it was nearing its end, that they could feel the end of the Jewish future in Europe. That the greater hope for improving the nation's physical and spiritual needs was the return to Zion, Shivat Zion. And bolded here, and in the important book in front of us, he's referring to Drishat Zion, are vital teachings for refuting those who oppose this idea. And that the essence of the book itself is to inculcate and convince those Haredim of the correctness of the Zionist idea. Now, I've mentioned so many rabbinic luminaries, we've talked about great rabbis, we've talked about people who learned in the great yeshivas, who were leaders of the great Jewish communities of Europe, but I would be remiss if I said that the opposition, the religious opposition to Zionism was far greater, was far more on the side opposing it. And that's who uh, Rav Rabinovich is referring to over here. Who are they trying to convince? who needs to be told that Zionism and moving Jews to the land of Israel is a good idea. So before I show you what is considered the chief rabbinic anti-Zionist text, and I'll explain what I mean by that, I think it's worth understanding a little bit about Jewish history and what it means to approach the end of Jewish history. After the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE, already then, already right in the ruins of it, there's a messianic foment. And it's led by Bar Kokhba and even Rabbi Akiva, even the greatest of the rabbinic sages at the time, the Talmud tells us, would carry the armor and the reins of Bar Kokhba in the sense that we are going to find some temporal leader, somebody is going to come and miraculously is going to save us from the horrors of our predicament in the wake of the destruction of the Temple. Later on in Jewish history as the Galut, as the exile continued, Gola Achar Gola Gola Yehuda exile after exile the jewish people and their peregrinations throughout the, the the lands of the world from babylon to spain to north africa to eastern europe to france and germany to america to russia and all these places where we find ourselves even to this very day there have been attempts throughout jewish history to say that we are approaching the end the most famous and the most Prominent of these messianic movements was none other than the movement of Shabtai Tzvi. And we could do a whole series about Shabtai Tzvi. And Shabtai Tzvi uh, essentially convinced a wide swath of the Jewish world that he indeed was going to uh, convert the caliph, of the, of the Ottoman Empire, and that he was going to return all the Jews to the land of Israel. He had a prophet, a Sabbatean prophet, a person who justified many of his claims uh, with Kabbalistic and esoteric arguments, Nathan Nathan of Gaza, and the whole Sabbatean movement was one that was reaching such a great fervor that many people living in Europe at the end of the, towards the end of the 17th century, when the state of the Jewish people was so degraded, and the state of the Jewish people is so precarious and vulnerable and unlettered that people would sell all their possessions in order to follow Shabbat Tzvi. It was a moment of great unity, really. There were rabbis that were opposed to Shabbat Tzvi at the time, but it was a moment of great unity in that many people followed along. In fact, we have a, a diary of a German girl, gluckel of Hammam, and she talks about the fact that her father had sold their possessions in order to be able to follow Shabbat Tzvi. Of course, in 1666, Shabtai Tzvi uh, goes uh, to Turkey, goes to convert the caliph, and it's not the caliph who gets converted, it's Shabtai Tzvi, who is mitasleim, who converted to Islam, and um, at, under, under the, his other choice was death. And that was the end of the most of the Sabbatean movement. There were still what we call crypto-Sabbateans. And there's even communities to this very day, the Dome, uh, who, uh, who still have a, like a kind of Islamic Jewish syncretistic religion. But most of the people left with the greatest disappointment uh, in, in hundreds of years since the destruction, maybe. The Messiah was supposed to come. They really believed that the Messiah was supposed to come. They really believed that Jewish history was coming to an end and that our troubles and our travails of the exile were getting finished and it wasn't to be. And so any messianic movement since or any movement that contains any tinge of messianism is certainly looked at askance by what we might term the religious establishment, by the rabbinic establishment, by rabbinic leaders and with very good reason. Very good reason because there is a sense that in Jewish history, there is what we call the passive approach to the Messiah. We sing this. We say, Yom We're going to wait for Mashiach. When is Mashiach going to come? We'll, we'll wait for it. We have been passive throughout history. We'll, we'll be in our ghettos. We'll be in our shtetlach. We'll be in our cities. We'll study Torah. We'll keep the mitzvot. And we'll hold fast to when is the Messiah going to come? Not yet. Not yet. That's the Messiah. And of course, there have been breakoffs from Judaism that say that the Messiah indeed is, has arrived, that the end, of our, the end of our suffering, the end of our history has indeed arrived. So you can imagine, I think, that the opposition to Zionism, the opposition to these rabbis that look at this moment, that look at this time of aus- of auspicious world events, they see... They see a, a carrot and a stick. The carrot they see is that there's a favorable uh, geopolitical context. The land of Israel is a colony of the great world powers. It's uh, first an Ottoman power, in Ottoman hands in, in 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 what was called Ottoman Syria, and then it becomes part of the British mandate. And the British are all too happy to give it up and to abdicate and to leave it over and let the Jews and the and the and the and the Arabs living in the land fight it out. But the rabbis of the Chovei movement, they were seizing upon the fact that rather than have a passive orientation towards redemption, one might adopt at this point in history an active orientation. And that has been religious Zionism ever since. And it has to live with the contradictions of Jewish history in which messianic movements, messianic portents, It's not always turned out so great for us. And anything that is explicitly messianic raises the hackles of people who say that it has never worked and that our duty, our job is to stay firm and to hold true to the Torah and to the mitzvot in the Galut. So it's not so much a halachic debate, but it's rather a debate that I think cuts to the core of how Jewish history unfolds, what our role in Jewish history is, what we're allowed to do, and I think one of the core texts in which everybody comes back to is the one that I want to look at for a little bit right now. So let's take a look at this text. And uh, I would say that this is the most famous. I called this, uh, it's not an anti Zionist text, but the way that it is taken, um, and certainly the Satmar Rebbe wrote a Mamar Shalosh Shruot, or Viole Teitelbaum of Satmar. So he cites and he writes an entire book articulating an approach that negates. A pa- an active an active orientation towards zion towards messianism towards bringing the mashiach towards settling the land of israel and and it goes something like this we're going to read it uh, we're going to read it in english just for the sake of time but it's a fascinating Gemara. rabbi Zaira, i have to read the first line cuz the aramaic is so so beautiful rabbi have a kamishtamit min the of Yehuda. Rabbi was avoiding his rabbi. He was avoiding Rabbi Yehuda. They were in Babylon at the time. yisrael. Zeirah wanted to make Aliyah. He wanted to go to the land of Israel. Why was he avoiding his rabbi? Because Rabbi Yehuda had said that Kol yisrael anybody that goes from Babylon from the exile to the land of Israel is violating a positive commandment. What positive commandment are they violating? I thought it was a mitzvah to make Aliyah. The positive commandment that they're violating is a verse from Yirmiyahu, prophet who foretold the destruction of the temple. I'm going to take the Jewish people after the destruction. I'm going to bring them to Babylon and there they will stay until the day in which I appointed, the day in which I choose them. Right, so already here we get a sense of that what are we really waiting for? We're not waiting for Jews to get on the Exodus and to fight the British and to fight the mosquitoes and to dread the swamps and to ward off uh, Arab armies in the war of independence and to form a government against all odds and to thrive. That's not what we're waiting for. That's not divine. What we're waiting for is something different. We're waiting at Pakti Osam, and to, we're waiting for God to, to come into history. Now, this is really the crux of the debate. Does God act in history in natural means or can God only act in history in a, messia, in a, in a miraculous mean on a national level? So what about Rabbi Zehra? What does Rabbi Zerah do with that Pasuk? How does he answer his Rebbe? Rabbi, Rabbi Zehra says, no, that was just referring to the vessels of the temple. Many of the vessels of the temple were, were looted and were taken outside of the land of Israel and, and those, those vessels are not going to be able to return until that appointed day. In the Talmudic back and forth, Rabbi Yehuda has to contend with that with that halacha. He has to contend with that idea. What does Rabbi Yehuda do with that pasuk? Rabbi Yehuda cites a different pasuk, a strange pasuk. It's mentioned three times in Shira Shiram in the Song of Songs. The Pasuk is a rather awkward one when translated into English. I adjure you, I forswear you, right? You're, you're hereby beholden by an oath, daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the hinds of the field, not to awaken or stir up love until it pleases. Now, the way that the Gemara and Rabbi Zeira understands and Rabbi Huda understands this is that we cannot awaken the love. We cannot go back. We cannot arouse ourselves in a messianic way to go back to the land of Israel and to resettle it, right? Until it's the right time, until God pleases. Rabbi Zeira says that that just means that the Jewish people shouldn't go up to Israel en masse. They shouldn't go up to Israel in a mass emigration, but individuals, the path for individuals to travel to the land of Israel is certainly always there for any individual. And certain, certainly great rabbinic luminaries throughout the ages have attempted to make their own individual pilgrimages to the land of Israel. I would say one of the most famous ones is the one that we read on Tisha B'Av. We, uh, we read the Kina uh, of uh, attributed Rabbi HaLevi, right? Sion, Sion, hallo tishali, l'shalom asirayich, right? That he wants to return to Jerusalem. He's, uh, and the legend goes that he's been, he was trampled by a horseman uh, before he's able to fully settle there. And the Ramban, many, many great Jewish leaders tried to ascend to the land of Israel. So Rabbi Zeirah holds an individual ascent. That's okay. And Rabbi and we come to the end of their discussion and we find that there are three oaths Three things that we are forsworn to do in Jewish history and these three oaths, which I said form the basis of of really this ideology that we may not have a active orientation towards Jewish history, especially when it comes to Messianism and the settling of the land of Israel and bringing forth the end of history. The three oaths are the following. And they're all based on these three instances of Yishbat Yitchem Benot Yerushalayim, the three times that it's mentioned in Shira Shirim, in chapter two, in chapter three, and in the final chapter of Shira Shirim. The first is, Shalo Ya'alu Yisrael B'choma, that we are not permitted to make aliyah mass to the land of Israel. Just can't do it. Individually, it's okay. For a Rabizer it's okay. For a, a first aliyah to form agricultural communities. not okay. God made us promise, forswore us that we would not rebel, that we would not rebel against the nations of the world. Somebody asked in the comments, this would be a Nefesh B'Nefesh flight would certainly be considered mass aliyah. That would certainly be considered one of uh, an idea. You're encouraging people, as many as possible, even if uh, the flight is God forbid not full, you're encouraging people to make aliyah. That's that's an individual thing. One person does it, or a bizeira can do it, and he must have his reasons to make it to the land of Israel. But to encourage an organized immigration to land of Israel is forbidden. It's one of the Oaths, it's a violation of the oath. So that's going up as a wall. The second that we may not rebel against the nations of the world. The nations of the world, unfortunately, have locked us in their ghettos and they've uh, they've prevented us from going back and rebuilding the land of Israel. And uh, that's been Jewish history for thousands of years in, in the ghetto and in the backwaters of uh, of Eastern Europe and throughout the world. And we've had to uh, suffer through dimitude in, in, uh, in the lands of Northern Africa and the Levant. And we'd have to suffer through pogroms and blood libels throughout the Jewish world in Europe for time immemorial. And we have to suffer through the Crusades. And this is the state, the sorry state, what we might call the lack morose interpretation of Jewish history. It's been pretty bad and pretty rough. And the final one, and this is fascinating because it kind of abrogates the second and God told the nations of the world they shouldn't slave or they shouldn't uh, cause the Jewish people to suffer too much. So already here we start to see the seeds of the answer, what one might answer. And certainly there are a great many religious Zionist books uh, that are written to answer the arguments uh, most prominently of the Satme Rebbe, Sat uh, Aleinu, in his Ma'amar Shalosh There are many, uh, answers to Rav Shlomo Aviner, the Rav of Beit El, and uh, Yeshivat HaTerequan. Even the Old City has a, almost line by line, what we call a fisking, right? A uh, line by line uh, argument and polemic against the way in which this is interpreted. One thing that's very clear to me about the Shalosh Shvuot, one thing that's very clear is that th- they prove to us that the debate is not really a halachic debate, right? The, the Shalosh Shvuot, whether or not that whether or not you want to say, it, it's, not, it's not necessarily codified in the Shulchan Aruch. Some people point to the fact that the Rambam Maimonides in his minyan ha and his count of the commandments did not include settlement of the land of Israel as one of the commandments. There is a halachic debate to be had. But I think that using these shalosh oaths, using these three oaths as the jumping off point for the rabbinic opposition, to Zionism in its nascent form in the Chavavay movement and in the first early days of the Zionist Congress and the Mizrahi, uh, up to the point that many people said the Mizrahi had broken from traditional Judaism, from Torah and authentic Judaism. The debate, I think, is more theological. The debate, I think, is much more occupying the realm of machshava, of Jewish thought, and less a halachic debate. It's really, it's really how I see Jewish history unfolding. It's really how I see the role of a Jewish person in the world and how I see, um, how I see the, the point of the state of things. Ha, have we closed the book on miracles? Have we closed the book on, on, on great historical, world historical events that affect and center the Jewish people? Did that end with Tanakh? Or is that something that continues to unfold nowadays? When I'm at my most Zionist, um, I like to say that we are living nowadays, right? The stories that we hear from Eretz Yisrael. I was talking with a friend of mine, once upon a time, there was a, there was a, a soldier, and just to go very microscopic for a second, a soldier, Aaron Karov, there is a soldier, Aaron Karov was a, uh, he was a katsin. he was an officer in the Tzankhanim during the first invasion of Gaza in uh, Fert and he was, um, he was uh, hit, I think, by an improvised explosive device. And, and he, was, um, he was unfortunately uh, severely brain damaged and it took him a long time to be able to work. Maybe you've seen his story. What made it so much more painful was that he was in the week of Sheva Brachos uh, when he was called back to the battlefield. And the story was covered in, in the news media in Israel for quite some time. His wife stayed by his side. I believe that they were in their Sheva Brachos. His wife stayed by his side. They built a ramp to his house. They raised money. And um, and I looked at this story. And I said that this is a story, in all of its tragedy, it's a story from Tanakh. That I see Jewish history from the thrust of, of Jewish history in the, in the past 150 years. The, the Holocaust, the pogroms, the emigrations, the beginning of of the dredging of the swamps and the founding, that it's almost like we're writing new chapters in Tanakh. It's almost like we're adding s- Sfarim to Jewish history, we're seeing Jewish history functioning on a world historical stage. It's not, of course, the Khalila to diminish the achievements of Judaism, the achievements of what we've done in centuries of Galut, the Torah that we've developed, everything that we've accomplished while subjugated to the worst degree. In a sustained way, over centuries, over millennia, what we've been able to accomplish, and then all of a sudden, God seems to be orienting us to the sense that these oaths, if this is what we're adhering to, this theological orientation that God is not acting in history like this, that it's actually changing. That something is amiss. That in 1917, we find a statement by Lord Balfour saying, I am, I am somewhat amenable. It's, a, it's addressed to one of the Rothschilds, actually. I believe it's the London branch of Rothschilds who lived on Piccadilly uh, Circus or whatever. And they were the ones who received the first letter. And, and, and he says, I'm one of the great temporal leaders of the world, nothing to, not Jewish, says I'm, the British government looks favorably upon Jewish emigration to the, land, to, the, to the land of Palestine. And that we find wealthy Jews who are able to support and to build Rishon Litzion, the first Jewish settlement, We have Petah Tik for the first agricultural settlement. We have places that start to sprout up rabbinic leaders that say, even if you were to hold by the three oaths and to say that we've been adjured, we've been forsworn from acting in history, perhaps the tide is turning. And certainly, 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 I think many of these arguments become abrogated, at least from a religious Zionist perspective, that when you say in the third oath, that they shouldn't oppress us too much. Well, then you could ask people like my Safta, who we started off this year from. we will tell you that now they've certainly oppressed us too much. The other two oaths are abrogated. We can certainly ascend to Israel and Maas. That's uh, my Safta we mentioned at the beginning of this year was on the boat before the exodus. And she emigrated to Israel. She was turned back by mandate authorities. She was interred in Cyprus before she was able to come back to Israel. But certainly I think that the survivors on the boat thought that perhaps the third oath, the third oath has been abrogated, that the third oath wasn't kept, the side of the deal wasn't kept by the people on the other side. That three oaths is I think one of the key, right? foundational texts of what the opposition to religious Zionism is. And we should certainly not think That figures, as great as they were, like Rav Al-Kalai, Rav Tzirosh Kalisher, and Rav Mohaliver, and Rav Rabinovich, and Rav Reynas, and V'chol Da'imeh, all of the other rabbinic leaders in Mizrahi, that they were in any way the mainstream, representing the mainstream of rabbinic thought, absolutely not. They represented what was an upstart stream. I want to just preview a little bit of what we're going to see next week. And, um, and Mirza Hashem, we will continue. And I want to speak a little bit more to understanding. As much as we might, if you call yourself a Zionist, it's so crucial to understand exactly why that position should not be taken for granted, and what exactly it means when it says, I am a religious Zionist, and how it's not a contradiction in terms. Um, but I think the key figure to being able to really, really find the harmony between religious and Zionist is going to be somebody who was not a member of Mizrahi. It was somebody who actually launched several significant criticisms on Mizrahi to the extent that he tried to found his own religious movement uh, that would be separate and apart from Mizrahi. And that's none other than Maran Harav Avram um, Yitzchak Kohen Cook, and Cook, who you see over here in pictures, and I could just show you whose picture. Uh, is in my library. and just show you how important Riff Cook is for me. That's Riff Cook's uh, photo. Looks out on my uh, family and my kids. And um, Cook is going to be, I think, the mo- the most significant figure, indisputably the most significant religious thinker for harmonizing, for bridging the gap between what it means to be religious and Zionist, and deals with the criticisms and critiques of so many important and great rabbinic thinkers. And Be'ezer Sashem next week, we're going to dive into the world of Ruf Cook a little bit, talk a little bit more about opposition and uh, what religious Zionism looks like and how it develops uh, into the movement that it is this very day um, with institutions even in Stanford, Connecticut that call themselves religious Zionist institutions like our very own Bicultural Hebrew Academy and, uh, and how important it is to understand and have our ideological background uh, to have it fortified and to have it fully articulated. So I want to thank you all